Good morning and Merry Christmas or Merry Christmas Eve. This is Chad Edgington, pastor of First Baptist Church of Olney, Texas. We thank you for joining us for our services this morning. Now it's Christmas Eve and um, I know everyone is excited. I hope that you have a place where you will be going to worship this morning. But as we think about Christmas and as we think about uh, what a special time of year this is, I want you to be encouraged today, and I want you to know that, um, as we'll hear in our sermon, that Christmas is a do-it-yourself project. Uh, Christmas uh, is a do-it-yourself project where God had to come and save us himself. It's a do-it-yourself project, but God had to do the work himself. Uh, We'll talk about that in the sermon, but I think it's summed up well by a quote by the late Tim Keller. He said, there's no moral story to the nativity. The shepherds, the parents of Jesus, the wise men are not being held up primarily as an example to us or for us. The gospel narratives that we read of Christ's birth are telling you not what you should do, what you have to do in your own strength to make peace with God, but they tell us what God has done for us. The birth of the Son of God into the world is a gospel good news. It's an announcement. The announcement is you don't have to save yourself. God has come to save you. Again, that's Tim Keller from his book or booklet, Hidden Christmas. Our sermon will carry along those similar themes as we're in Isaiah chapter 59 today. If you have your Bibles, you might turn there and follow along as I'll read a good portion of the scripture. We'll begin our time with a poem that was read at our 2022 Christmas Eve service by Shad Sullivan. Shad is one of our members, and he's also quite a poet, as you'll hear here as he reads this poem called Christ, the Greatest Gift. Well, I don't know if you guys realize this, but Shad Sullivan, in addition to being a YouTube celebrity, maybe a Facebook celebrity, I'm not sure. He's famous in some parts of the world. And uh, also, being a rancher, is also a great poet. So I asked Shad to write us. I commissioned a special poem, and he did it for free. So thank you, Shad. (laughs) I'll tell uh, you, uh, Chad, it's hard to follow that up. (laughs) I was sitting back there crying like a baby. And uh, that was phenomenal. Beautiful. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody, from our family to yours. Chad asked me to uh, write this poem, and it took me a while. I don't know if you guys knew it was cold this week. We had a lot of ice to break and calves to get through, but we got it done. This is called Christ, the Greatest Gift. Who is this babe, this newborn king, this angel, the angels sang about, this holy child, this blessed one, King Herod would now doubt, this shepherd of the shepherds, This wisdom to the wise, this baby in a stable that someday would arise. This prince of peace, this mighty one, this everlasting rock, this beloved light of glory whom one day would be mocked. Who is this babe, this newborn king, laying lowly in a manger? This delivered host of heaven, despised and called a stranger. This homeless, harmless child, this tree of life, this manna poured from heaven. This host of all perfection held one day for our ransom. 
this fortress of the faithful, this refuge of the used, this begotten son of man, this bloodied and be bruised, who is this babe, this man, this king, this rock of all the ages, this anointer of the righteous, this author of the pages, this water to the thirsty, this servant to the shamed, this commander of the closing and this healer to the lame, this bread to all that hunger, this exalter of the meek, this helper to the hopeless, this stronghold to the weak, who is this babe, this man, this king, this Adonai on high, this was and is and is to come, this noble Al Shaddai, this son of God, this son of man, this beginning and this end, this baby in a manger, this light in Bethlehem, this ancient of the days, this redeemer of all man, this star we call Emmanuel. He is the great I am. He is the greatest gift, the savior of this world, this baby, this baby in a manger, Yeshua, unfurled. I was leaving the church parking lot one night. It was pretty late. And I got pulled over on Main Street, and I always think that's fun when the preacher gets pulled over on Main Street, and all the people slow down and gawk at me. But uh, all that was, all that it was, was I think there was a. It was either my license. I think my license plate light was out on the back, and uh, they said, "Well, you have to have your license plate lit up." And so I wondered, "Well, how how am I going to do that?" So what do you do when you don't know how to fix your car? Where do you go? You go to YouTube. So I got a light, and I got went to YouTube, and I was a fixer-upper. I fixed it up. And now that we have YouTube, we're a nation of fixer-uppers. And sometimes I think, as, as Randy was alluding to, when we think about our relationship with God, there are some things that we try to do to fix up our relationship with God. We try to be fixer-uppers there. But what about the things that can't be fixed? You know, you could come to church every single Sunday your whole life, and it's possible that that wouldn't fix your greatest problem. You could read your Bible every day. That may not fix your greatest problem. You doing things will not fix your relationship with God. That's one of the keys to remember about the gospel. Every other religion tells you that if you want to fix up your relationship with God, you do things. What the gospel says is that for our relationship with God to be fixed, he had to do something. And that really is our sermon this morning in a sentence. In Isaiah chapter 59, the people of God are in a position where they are religious. And they are saying all the right words. They are going through the motions. They're doing the right things. But they know that God is not accepting their worship and they're wondering what's going on. They're at the end of their rope. Sometimes we find ourselves at the end of our rope, unable to stop sinning, unable to truly love God with our whole heart, unable to live up to God's standards or even our own standards. And we're sitting here wondering, as the people of God were back 600 years before Jesus even came, while they were about to suffer exile in Babylon and all the sorrow and suffering that would be associated with that, they were wondering, what is wrong Why can't we fix ourselves up? Why can't we make God accept us? And whenever we come to the end of our rope in that way, we have to remember that God is not the problem. Look at Isaiah 59, verse 1. Always remember this in any trouble that you're in. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. 
that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. One of the themes of the book of Isaiah is that God is close to us. If you think about Isaiah chapter 6, what happens? He shows up in the temple. The train of his robe fills the temple with glory. We move on to chapter 9 as we read today, and God uh, comes as a son, and he is with his people. We think about how we studied uh, 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 in chapter 40 last week to be comforted. God comes to his people, and he comforts his people with news that he has a hope and he has a future for them. And so in Isaiah, as we come on to 59, in verse 1, we're reminded God's hand is not so short that it cannot save. He can reach all the way down to you. No matter how far down you are, his arm is never too short. He can save. And his ear is not dull. It cannot hear. If, if we don't think about this, and I've shared this before, I'm sure, but when we read the Bible and we talk about God hearing, why is that important? Now, if I wanted to hear Lonnie, he could talk to me right now. Or he could get on his phone and he could go 100 miles away and I could still hear him. But back in the ancient days, they didn't have cell phones. If you wanted to hear somebody, you had to be with them. And so when it says God can hear you, what that's saying is God is with you. He's so close to you that he can hear you. So God is not the problem. God is always there. People say, I'm running from God. I will say, you're not really running away from God because all you have to do is turn around. And when you turn around, where is God? He's right there. The real problem lies with us, especially those of us who are focused on religious things and we're not focused on our sin. We hear a powerful testimony like Randy's and we think, wow, wow, he's really telling us, uh, you know, uh, uh, about some, some hardships and those brick walls that he was talking about that landed him into, into prison and, and so forth. But you know, uh, what he, what I, what I heard at his testimony, and I think what he was trying to communicate is that when you get out, when he got out, the distractions were the prison. And then they were, they're the things that will keep us from God. Uh, all these distractions and, and perhaps we can focus on doing religious things and our heart can never be tuned to God. Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be sad if you've done all the religious things, but you never knew Jesus? You were always associated with his people and with his church and with his book and all these things, but you never knew the man Jesus. Well, that's kind of how it is. These Israelites and, and Isaiah, as they are about to be punished in exile, they have known all about God their whole lives, but they've never known him. They've never actually had a relationship with their Lord. Look at verse 2. Isaiah, the Lord speaking through him, says, it's not the problem that God can't hear you. It's not the problem that God can't save you. But your iniquities have made a separation. Sin separates us from a holy God. Look at verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So that he doesn't hear you. He's separated. We're far away. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters a lawsuit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief. They give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave spider's webs. And he who eats the wet eggs dies, and from the one, uh, and from the one that is crushed by the viper is, uh, when the viper is hatched, their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Anyway, sin makes bad clothes is what that's saying. It's like trying to wear a spider web. You ever worn a spider web? I've walked through some and worn them for a few seconds, and it's not pleasant. And it doesn't cover much up, does it? Their works are of iniquity. Their deeds are of violence. 
Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. What is this saying? There's no peace for the wicked. If you oppose God, there is no peace for you. And what human beings desperately need is peace with God. What happens when you run away from God? What happens when you run away from God and the things that he loves? You're miserable. The wages of sin is death, but the wages are also misery. Because sin makes us slaves, there are no happy slaves. They are miserable. Slave, uh, you might have had a slave uh, many years ago in the ancient times who had a good master. But sin is a bad master. Sin is a harsh master. It doesn't love you at all. And eventually, whenever you sin and sin and sin and you're miserable and miserable and miserable as the people of Israel are, you, you've come to a realization that God's way is best. Through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we realize God's way is best. Look at the people in verse 9 come to that realization. Therefore, justice is far from us, they say. They hear all these indictments against them and they say justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and we get darkness. We hope for brightness and we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon in the twilight. It's daylight outside and we're stumbling. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. Sin sometimes turns us into animal, like more like an animal than a, than a creation of God, doesn't it? We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities. Transgressing, denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart of lying words. Justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares. Look at our own nation. They were suffering a similar thing back many years ago in Isaiah's time. There was such lies and such iniquity in the public places that the righteous could not enter. Verse 15, truth is lacking. If there is one thing that can be said about our age... It is that truth is lacking. People refuse to see the truth about marriage, about gender, about God's will for human sexuality. We refuse to see the, the, the truth about our own sin, our own iniquity, our own hearts. And it was so bad, they said, in their own nation there in Israel, they said, the truth is lacking so much that if you depart from evil, you make yourself a prey. When someone decides, I'm not going to act like this anymore, the people attack him. That was the state that they were in. Evil, iniquity, and they were recognizing this in themselves. And then at the end of verse 15 it says, And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Have you ever noticed about our Christmas songs that we love so much that they really do echo these kind of realizations that everything is broken? That everything between us and God is broken? Come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night. 
No more let sins and sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. Yet with the woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long. All ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil among the climbing way with painful steps and slow. And then in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong. And it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Who can fix this? Aren't you glad those are not the only verses in the Christmas song? Who can fix this? This problem that man and God are separated by the iniquity of man. We have the creation story, the Christmas story, the Easter story, the story of the past, the story of the future, and it's all wrapped up in verse 16, if you'll look at it. And God saw. God saw. We saw that God could hear. Now God is seeing. And God's close, and He sees. God sees there's no man. God sees there is no man. There's all this problem, all these, all this sin, all this iniquity, all this brokenness. And God looks and He says, there's no man that can fix it. God needs a man who can fix it. He looks and there's no man. And he wondered that there is no one who can intercede. There is no one who can stand between a holy God and these sinful people and be their intercessor. So what's he going to do? He saw there's no man. He wondered that there's no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. When there was no man, what did God do? God the Son said, I'll go and be that man. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. The birth of that baby child who was going to grow up and be the man. God's own arm to bring salvation and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on, look at verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Why is this man dressing for battle? Because he came to earth not to just be a cute little baby in a manger, but to fight and kill death and sin, to put an end to it. What a blessing it is that God himself sent his son, to fight on our behalf because we couldn't do it because God looked and there was no man. And although right now it seems in this world like things are moving slowly, like gospel work takes forever, but one day this is all going to play out and we will see the glory and the victory of the man who came, the one, the God himself, who brought salvation by his own arms. According to verse 18, it says, according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. God will take all of the injustice. He will take all the sin, all the things that are done wrong. God is going to make those things right. In the end, justice will be done. In the end, no one will question God's righteousness. He will right all the wrongs, make straight everything that's crooked. And verse 9 19, so they shall fear the name of the Lord. When the Lord comes, when he comes in this way, everyone will fear the name of the Lord from the west 
He will do this not just to save his children that he loves, but to do this to glorify his own holy name. They will, they will all fear the Lord because that's how the Lord receives the most glory. And his glory from the rising of the sun. Remember, God's purpose is that he would be worshipped from east to west. East to west, all the earth. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. So what do we have happening here in our passage? The Lord sees that we, and we'll go back to the context, the Lord sees that the people there cannot save themselves. So he makes a promise. Because they have no righteous king to lead them, he is going to come and be the righteous king to lead them. He steps into the story and he leads them. This is what God has done for us. We fear the name of the Lord, as it says in verse 19, because he's worth our reverence and our fear. He's worth our respect and our love and our worship because he is the only one who can save. Look at verse 20. And a redeemer will come from Zion. And we know that he came not just to the Jews, but to all mankind. To those who are in Jacob, who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. That was the promise. That's what we celebrate this week. We celebrate that God kept the promise to send a Redeemer to Zion. And then what's revealed after that, as I mentioned, is that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews, but he came for everyone who had put their faith and trust in him, Jew and Gentile. And we celebrate today that God kept his promise. Noel, Noel, come and see what God has done. This means that for those who repent and turn from their sin, there is salvation in Jesus. There's a promise of a covenant that God will save us and he will not depart from us if we are in Christ. But the key to the gospel is to remember that this is not our own doing. This is all his doing. The Lord saw there was no man and his own arm brought salvation. In other words, salvation is a do-it-yourself project. It is a fixer-upper. It's a DIY. But it's a do-it-yourself that you can't do. God had to do it himself. It was his DIY project. He saw there was no man. And so his arm brought salvation. Verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. That's the promise. God is near. God's going to put his spirit upon us and in us as we live for Jesus Christ. That is the promise. God is going to redeem us and He's going to give us His Spirit. This is how we live the Christian life. This is the only way to live the Christian life. To trust in this Redeemer who has done it Himself. And to live by the Spirit. We have to remember this during the Christmas season or it just becomes a celebration just like the world does. I guess that's been my thought this Christmas season. Every Christmas rolls around, you start to think, well, what am I going to preach on? How many more times can I talk about this story? How many more sermons? I have to preach four sermons about Christmas, so we've done them out of Isaiah. 
But Isaiah serves as a good reminder to us that the child was coming because God saw that there was no man that could do this. And so God himself had to become a man and had to conquer sin and death on our behalf. Christmas is a time for us as gospel-believing Christians where we can grow. It might have started off as traditions uh, in the Catholic Church, or it might be something that's been hijacked by the culture. But for us as Christians, we can we don't have to be bah humbug about it because there's so much secularization. We can use this as a time to disciple other people, to tell other people about the good news of Jesus, and to grow as believers. So how can we help each other grow as application points? How can we help one another grow in Christ this Christmas season? Number one, let's all be honest about our need for Christ. At the table, when you're eating, just before you open your presents, stop and remind each other, this Christmas is awesome. These decorations are beautiful. But Christmas is not just about feeling good and being merry. It's about feeling our deep need for a Savior. It's understanding that. This passage warns us not to see our good as big and our sins as very small. There's a temptation at Christmas because what are you doing? You're giving and you're feeling good about yourself. This is the one time of year we do it. And we're thinking, well, look how generous I am. Hey, never get in a situation where you start to see your good is big and your sin is small. Remember that when we protect our sin by not being honest about it, like Israel did, we are inviting the same kind of destruction that fell upon them. Life doesn't work when we live by wrong design. They just sort of ignored the fact that their sin was taking them over a cliff because they thought, well, I'm still going to church. You can have a beautiful Christmas, you can have a beautiful church family, and you can still be headed straight for hell. So search your heart. Ask the Lord, is there any unclean way within me? Am I taking my sin seriously? Am I understanding the message of the Christmas story is that God saw that there was no man and he had to send a redeemer himself because we needed to be brought to reconciliation with God because of our great sins. And God provided a great salvation. Let's be honest about that. If you're not a believer, maybe you can't stand church because of the hypocrisy but you feel obligated for family reasons or otherwise to show up around Christmas time. This passage is a good passage for you who doesn't like hypocrisy because God doesn't like it either. In fact, God hates it. So when you're around God's people, don't look for the ones that are hypocrites. Look for the ones who are serious. You know? Look for the ones that are serious about their sin. Look for the ones who are serious about following Christ. You can go through every single person in this room. How many perfect people will you find? Okay, only you. No, you'll find none, even yourself. None of us are perfect. But when we come to church, what should we find? People who are repentant. People who are serious about their sin. Find those people. And also realize you're not perfect. You're a sinner. You're under the wrath of God. And he is zealous. He hates sin. He hates hypocrisy. He's going to make everything that's wrong right. He's going to punish evil and rebellion. If you are his enemy, you will be punished. You will be destroyed. Here's the invitation. Let the light of the gospel story shine into your heart today. Come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Put your faith and trust in him. And he is merciful and he promises to forgive you. I love, I love Christmas. Uh, I love, I love it all. I love Santa. I love Rudolph. 
I love trees. I love lights. I love the music. I love the food. And it's, it's awesome to, to see all the sweaters and to go, we're going to go look at the lights on Wednesday night with the youth group. And it's all fun. It's all wonderful. But here is what I'm asking you to do with me this Christmas. Let's ponder what really happened all those years ago. Let's really think about it. What, what the Lord did when he saw there was no man, when he wondered that there was no one to intercede, and then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. What is that talking about? The life and the death and the resurrection, the glorification of Jesus Christ. We serve a wonderful king who came to save us in a wonderful way. It's a lot to enjoy at Christmas time. Let's enjoy him this week. Father, thank you for Christmas and for the gospel story and all that you've done. And Lord, we pray now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper that you just continue to speak to our hearts and remind us that if Christ had not come, we would be in darkness. We would be without light and without hope. So Father, as we receive this supper now, we pray that you would impart or... or, or Uh, show us how we have a great need, just as we need food and we need drink, that we also need Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I'll ask our deacons to come forward at this time.